Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in Nebraska this week. Nebraska mm-hmm. is a state that I really don't know a whole lot about. So here we are. You know, I feel like I'm in a very similar boat, Eden. I learned all kinds of new things about Nebraska. And I would say over the course of my research, I fell down a couple Wikipedia rabbit holes because I didn't know how much I didn't know about Nebraska. Yeah, right. It's like, because it's not anywhere near us. So it's like just something that you don't really think about, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, if it'll help you learn more about Nebraska, I can share some of the fun state facts that I found about Nebraska. Absolutely. Let's learn about Nebraska. So the nickname for Nebraska, its state nickname, I should say, is the Corn Husker State. And that's the only thing I think about when I think about Nebraska is corn. So right? that works. <laughs> I'm just like cornfields, I think. Like that's that's where I am. Yes, that's very true. Nebraska is one of the leading producers of corn in the U.S., but apparently, it's only been officially called the Cornhusker State since 1945. Huh. Before that, the state's nickname was the Tree Planters State. So it's got a lot of trees, too, I'm guessing. Well, so here's the interesting thing. So Nebraska's part of like the Great um, American Sea, they call it, because it's like the Great Flat Plains. Yeah. Well, the reason Nebraska was nicknamed the Tree Planter State is because Arbor Day started in Nebraska. Oh, Okay. So in 1854, a Nebraskan pioneer named J. Sterling Morton, who was an agricultural enthusiast, moved from Detroit to Nebraska, and he immediately saw that there was a need to have more trees on the prairie. So by 1872, he had convinced the State Board of Agriculture in Nebraska to promote a day where people would specifically devote it to planting trees, both forests and fruit trees. And hence, the first Arbor Day was celebrated in 1872 in Nebraska with more than a million trees planted in Nebraska. And I know I did learn about Arbor Day stuff. Well, in school, of course, because you learn about all those holidays. And I also learned about it more recently from another podcast, but I honestly did not retain any of it. So (laughs) surprise. So what else about Nebraska is interesting? I know you mentioned that we don't hear too much about Nebraska, but I did find a Pennsylvania connection. Really? Okay. So the capital of Nebraska is Lincoln. But did you know that originally Lincoln was called Lancaster? No, I didn't. It was. It was actually named after the town in Pennsylvania. However, it was renamed to honor Abraham Lincoln after his assassination. However, there was also a ulterior motive. So in the 1860s, there was a lot of shifting back and forth of where they wanted to make the state capital in Nebraska. A lot of folks were talking about moving the state capital from Omaha to Lancaster. And in the the late 1860s, one of the Nebraska state legislators who wanted to keep the capital in Omaha decided to play on the overwhelming Confederacy sympathies in Nebraska and honor, quote unquote, Abraham Lincoln by renaming Lancaster Lincoln. Okay. He was kind of he was kind of counting on all those, you know, Confederate sympathizers for voting against the move from Omaha since it would be naming the town after a guy who basically was the anti-Confederacy, right? Yeah. And I mean, Omaha is like the natural choice for your capital since it's the largest city in Nebraska. Right, right. Uh, in the long run, this plan totally failed, and it was, and the city was renamed Lincoln, and it's now the capital. Uh, ironically, though, the county in which the capital is located and is also the county seat is still called Lancaster. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Speaking of government in Nebraska, Nebraska holds a very unique honor in the U.S. It's the only state that has a unicameral legislature which means that it only has a single house system as opposed to a bicameral legislature that you see at the federal level and also in all the other states in the country. You're speaking words that much I know. (laughs) (laughs) It basically means instead of having like two different houses, so like a Congress and a Senate, it has just the single one. And it also is nonpartisan. So there's no state affiliation or sorry, there's no party affiliations printed on any of the voting ballots in the state of Nebraska. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I think we could do away with the two-party system and be just fine. Mm -hmm. So I like that. Oh, girl, don't even get me started. (laughs) 
Let's see. Okay, so I also discovered that a lot of random stuff has come from Nebraska. First of all, do you remember trying to get through English class and then like not reading all of those terribly boring like Shakespeare plays? So you just kind of grabbed your little black and yellow booklet from Cliff Cliff's Notes. Oh, Cliff's Notes. Yep. Well, it turns out that we have Nebraska to thank for those little handy dandy pocket study guides. I think I did know that. Hmm. I didn't know this. This is totally total news to me. But I guess uh, the Cliff Notes book series is from the Nebraska Book Company. And one of the managers at the company, a guy named Clifton Hillgas, bought a series of notes about Shakespeare from a Canadian book company that was named after its owner, Jack Cole. Uh, The notes were called Cole's Notes. And in 1958, he renamed them to Cliff's Notes and expanded them beyond the just covering works of Shakespeare to make it pretty much covering anything you'd come across in the English canon. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah. I like it. Nebraska is a landlocked state. It's kind of in the middle of the country. It's one of those square states. But did you know that it has a navy? Why? Yeah, why? (laughs) (laughs) Great question. So it all goes back to this man, one of the lieutenant governors, T.W. Metcalf. He was lieutenant governor in the 1930s. And in 1931, he commissioned the Nebraska State Navy as a way to gift his friends and family with kind of a ridiculous and meaningless government appointment. So he kind of came up with the idea of awarding people the rank of admiral as a way to honor people who have, quote, contributed to the state in some way, promoted the good life in Nebraska, and warranted recognition as determined by the governor. Okay. Uh, It's kind of like Kentucky and the colonel. Yeah. So I think when we covered that state, we talked about how Colonel is kind of honorific in, in Kentucky. Well, I guess Admiral's the same in Nebraska, but even more ridiculously delightful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just, it's so weird. And I mean, like we're landlocked too. So I, I feel mm-hmm. you on that one. Um, but I mean, like it would even make more sense for us to have a Navy since at least we're a little bit closer to, you know, the ocean. Mm-hmm. Unless we're on a great lake. Uh- <laughs> yeah. And yeah, there is that great lake. To give you an idea of some of the folks who over the years have been awarded Nebraska Admiralty, it's all over the place, dude. It's like Queen Elizabeth II, Captain Kangaroo. Captain Kangaroo? Yeah, Captain Kangaroo. Well, he is a captain. Yep, yep. That's quite a promotion for him. Uh, Big Bird's an admiral, Dr. J, John Glenn the astronaut, and even Bill Murray is a admiral of the great state of Nebraska. Bill fucking Murray. All Mm -hmm. right. He pops up everywhere these days. (laughs) Yes, he does. Sometimes as a zombie. It's true. It's true. Or not a zombie, as the case may be. That was true. Yes. <laughs> uh, my next couple of facts sort of round out our fun, weird facts about Nebraska because they're all food related. And I figured that's a great place for us to end. Okay. Yeah. I like food. Nebraska doesn't officially have a state food, but they are well known for a very unique fast food restaurant. Uh, it's this place called Runza's. Have you ever heard of Runza's? I have not. Okay. It's this fast food chain that you can only find in Nebraska. It has like 82 restaurants in the state and a couple, like a handful, like there's one in Colorado, a couple in Iowa and a couple in Kansas. And their like main dish is a combination of ground beef and cabbage that's stuffed into a pastry shell and then served hot. The whole thing is called a runza and it's beloved by Nebraskans. Interesting. All right. So I'd not it. it's the unofficial state food, I suppose you could say, of Nebraska. Yeah. So while the runs is the unofficial state food, if you want to wash it down, there is an official state beverage. The state beverage in Nebraska is Kool-Aid. All right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and that is because the man who invented Kool-Aid won Edwin Perkins actually is from Nebraska and he ran the original Kool-Aid business, which was originally called Fruit Smack out of a small mail order business in Hastings, Nebraska. Very interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And then the last fun fact I have about Nebraska is that there is a six foot tall statue of Chef Boyardee in Omaha. Well, I mean the greatest chef of all time. Come on. <laughs> That's right. He was. It's mostly because uh, the ConAgra Inc. food conglomerate is based in Omaha. Mm-hmm. 
And that includes brands like obviously Chef Boyardee, but also Healthy Choice, Jiffy Pop, Ready Whip, Slim Jim. And since Chef Boyardee was such a huge uh, initial product line for the company, they honor the chef himself, who was actually in real life called Hector Boyardee, uh, who was a renowned chef before his face ever graced those cans of SpaghettiOs on your grocery store shelf. But yeah, you can see a six-foot statue. Actually. <laughs> nice, nice. But yeah, if you're ever in Omaha, go ahead and swing by and say hey to Chef Boyardee. And see, it's funny because my story is in Omaha and I didn't come across the Chef Boyardee thing. Lots of other food, but not that. Mm, my story is also in Omaha. We're very Omaha-centric. Ooh, we are. <laughs> With that, do you want me to get started on my story since I think that was your last fun fact? Yeah, I would love to dive into your story now that we're all slightly more educated about Nebraska. Yes, absolutely. Well, like I just said, my story for this week takes place in Omaha, Nebraska. It is the county seat of Douglas County and the largest city in the state of Nebraska, as well as being one of the only cities I actually really know in Nebraska because it's not really a state I'm familiar with, like I said, although now I'm a little bit more educated on Nebraska. A lot of people call the city of Omaha home as it has a population of 408,958 people, with the metropolitan area having a population of nearly 1 million. That's pretty big for a Midwestern state, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Omaha has an acreage of 144.59 square miles, so it's pretty large in that way as well. It's also situated along the Missouri River, and the downtown area does look really beautiful from the pictures that I've seen. Like, Omaha looks pretty damn cool. The city is also home to a whopping four Fortune 500 companies, including Berkshire Hathaway, this next one I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but Kiwit Corporation, Mutual of Omaha, which that makes sense, and Union Pacific, which is the largest railroad operator in the country. A lot of things have been invented here as well, including Butterbrickle ice cream, the Reuben sandwich, pre-made cake mix, and Raisin brand cereal. I mean, I guess the Reuben makes up for the Raisin brand. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, like, they had Raisin brand crunch for a while, and that was good. Like, if it didn't have the raisins in it, I would eat it all the damn time. It's funny you mentioned that because I literally have the generic version that I just bought the other day in the grocery store, like in my pantry. Because I was like, you know, I want something that has brand in it, but I also want something that's a little sweet and crunchy. Exactly. And the Raisin Brand Crunch was great, but my bag toward the end of it was just all raisins because I just kept picking them out and then putting them back in. <laughs> you know what they say? There's two scoops in every box, Eden. <laughs> yeah. And there's two scoops left over when I'm done with them. So... <laughs> Other than the natural beauty of like all the parks that Omaha has to offer, because there are a ton, there's also a ton of other things to do from museums to the orchestra and everything in between. So all in all, it seems to be a pretty nice city, but it does have a rather high crime rate in a lot of areas, which is not uncommon for a big city. So that makes sense. And I am actually here to tell you about one of those crimes today. I know big shocker, but this is the story of Jessica O'Grady. So Jessica O'Grady was born in 1986. I could not find an actual birth date, but we do know that she was born in 86, which made her 19 at the time of the events that we're going to discuss. Jessica was a college student at the time of her disappearance. She was initially going to the University of Nebraska at Omaha for social studies. But after working in a daycare, she realized that she wanted to do something with children, according to her friend Holly. I also know that she was a waitress at a steak restaurant around the time of her disappearance as well, and that will come into play a lot. So the night that everything went down, she'd been hanging out with either friends or relatives at her apartment. They ordered pizza. We all know that kind of night, right? Some of the Mm -hmm. best nights. Mm -hmm. You just stay in, order pizza, and talk. Well, she gets a text message, and it's from a guy named Chris. She texts him back, and she says to the people with her, I'm going over to Chris's. And she goes to take a shower. Now, when her friends hear this name, they all think it's this guy, Chris Edwards, a guy that she works with at the restaurant who also went to the same school as her. So she took her shower and left around 11 o'clock at night, which unfortunately would be the last time that anyone would see her. Mm. So according to forensic files, it was 11 But that's an estimation because according to the police report, it was anywhere from 1045 to 1115 and phone records do so that she had placed a call on her cell phone to Chris at 1145. Okay. 
She was missing for two days before her friends decided to call the police and tell them that she never returned home. I know that might sound weird to wait that long when a loved one goes missing, but listen, you always hear the thing that you can't report someone missing for a certain amount of time, usually 24 to 48 hours. And that's what a lot of people know. And it's also what some police will tell you. The truth of the matter is that it's not really the case and you can report someone missing at any time. Uh, They don't really like it, but as I'm sure you've heard, those first 48 hours when someone can't be found are the most crucial because that's when you'll find more evidence. And the sooner someone can start working the case, the more likely you are to actually find the person that's missing. So yet again, I can understand also feeling the need to wait because no one wants to be that person who cries wolf. You feel like an idiot calling the police saying someone's missing, just have them turn up a few hours later. So I get it. Also, I had some conflicting information between the Forensic Files episode and charlieproject.org where Forensic Files said that her friends reported her missing and Charlie Project said that her parents were the ones that reported her missing after she did not show up for work, which, as usual in these stories, was very much unlike Jessica. Anyway, she'd been missing now for two whole days without any words, so police were probably going to have a hard time with this one. They were able to find her car when they started their investigation. It was a gray Hyundai Accent, and it had been abandoned outside the restaurant where she worked. It just seems weird because she told her friends, you know, I'm going over to see this guy, Chris, and then her car is outside of her work. Maybe he was getting off of work. We don't know. Yeah, but that's that's super weird. Just a little sketchy. So a really weird kind of funny clue that someone had mentioned was that her car was not normally clean, which I guess I'll have to raise my hand and say me too on that one. Uh, but when they found the car, there wasn't a lot of clutter in it. Like, like it had been cleaned, which is just a huge red flag that something has truly happened to her because that was not like her. Obviously, the police knew that they had to talk to Chris because that's who they said that she was going to see. So they also had the basic theory of, oh, maybe she ran away like they always do. But mm-hmm. that wasn't something that she would have done, according to the people that knew her. Plus, the evidence just simply doesn't support it. She didn't take anything with her. She hasn't been using her credit card and there's been no activity on her phone at all. I always think it's interesting in missing persons cases where it's always like they probably ran away. And I understand that that can happen. Yeah. Like you said, when there's evidence showing that this person like probably didn't take anything with them that they needed to like go on the run. It always strikes me as like, that's just lazy. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. That's lazy police work. Mm-hmm. That's what I think too. So they do go and talk to Chris and he says that he never saw her that night and that he had actually been out at the movies with friends at this time, which was corroborated. He had the movie ticket for an American haunting Mm -hmm. and police checked out security footage of Chris leaving the movie when it was over. So he said that he didn't even know that she was coming to see him, which is a little odd. This is when police do a little digging and realize two things. There's this other Chris, whom she had apparently been seeing romantically at some point, and she thought that she might have been pregnant around the time of her disappearance. Uh Uh-oh. So the biggest question to investigators now is which Chris had she been going to see? The one from work, whom I believe friend said that, that she seemed interested in, or this guy that she was seeing whose name just, of course, has to be Chris, too, because nothing can ever just be simple. Everyone, just stop naming people Chris, okay? I mean, Hollywood has enough Chris's for the next millennium. I think we're covered. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes, they do. Just name them something a little more unique. And I don't mean like celebrity children unique, like Apple or Conquistador or Audio Science, which, yes, all three of those are real celebrities' children's names. (laughs) Uh, But maybe just a name that's a little less common. So... Yeah, they're going over where she was and her phone activity that night. And after midnight, she did send a text to a friend which said, quote, no more shenanigans for Jessica. Which what? Sounds, yeah, it sounds super eerie to me. And like someone else sent that from her phone. But according to her friends, that's something that she would say. And shenanigans were her code word for sex. Okay. So I don't know if that meant that she was going to like hook up with one of the Chris's or if maybe like they ended up breaking up that night. But that was the text that she sent 
which her friend insisted was legitimately her. Okay. But it does sound like super crazy. Yeah, that sounds super sketchy. Yeah, like I, I just imagine like someone after murdering her just typing on her cell phone, no more shenanigans for Jessica. Like, I you know, know. sounds then- so horrible. It does. It totally does. But it's like, I can totally think of times that I've like used the third person as well. And it's like. (laughs) Exactly. Yep. (laughs) All right, girl. I get it. They decided to trace, uh, to try to trace the text and see like which tower it pinged from to see if that could get them anywhere. And they also wanted to learn the identity of this other Chris who turned out to be a guy named Chris Ryan, whom she had previously dated. And I'm just going to say it again. Stop naming your kids Chris because I've dated a few Chris's and I'm not trying to Chris hate, but they were all extremely toxic. But that could also just be me because I attract toxic. I mean, if Toxie, the toxic Avenger were real, he'd be all over me. It's just (laughs) something I have to live with, but it doesn't you don't just don't take the chance and find another name. But there is a point. For me in this whole toxic Chris thing, because this Chris Ryan guy was actually a registered sex offender. Oh, hello. Yeah. So now I'm not saying that everyone that's on the registry deserves to be there. Most of them do. But I've known several people who are on there for like the dumbest reasons ever. Like my one friend in college had an ex who picked up this girl in a bar. So somewhere that you have to be 21 to get in. But she turned out to be like 16 or 17. And he's on the registry for unwanted contact with a minor. Not saying anything against the registry because it can be a really great thing to protect people from dangerous predators. But if I'm out at a bar, I'm not going to, you know, ask someone I'm flirting with for ID. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we don't know because I don't know what type of offense it was. So it turns out that Chris had only been out of prison for less than two years at this point. And it was a statutory rape one, which is one of those things that could go either way, honestly. Yeah. Because I don't know what the age difference was. I've seen people get charged with it who just turned 18 when their girlfriend's still 17. So I don't know. Uh, But police check into this Chris guy and there didn't appear to be any communication between Jessica and Chris for at least a few weeks. So that was yet another dead end. Now we're going to get into something super scandalous. So buckle up. They go back and look at the first Chris, Chris Edwards. And yet again, we have another fucking toxic Chris. So you know what? I might just be onto something. Chris was seeing other girls while also seeing Jessica. And one of these other girls, whose name was Michelle, was also pregnant by him. Wait a minute. I'm confused. So there's the first Chris who was at the movies. Yes, that was the one that's at the movies. And he's seeing, he was seeing Jessica as well? Like they were dating too. Yes, he was seeing Jessica. Okay, he was but- also seeing other girls, including one whose name was Michelle, who was also pregnant by him. So Jessica's baby is probably his, and Michelle's baby is definitely his. Gotcha. So then there's this other Chris, the Chris who's on the the sex offenders registry. Yes, and that is an other dude that she was kind of Jessica was seeing on the side. She was seeing him before she started seeing this Chris. Okay, so she had like broken up with that other Chris, presumably yeah. to date. Movie Chris. Probably. <laughs> okay. Movie I'm, Chris makes him sound like Chris Pine, Chris Hemsworth, Chris whoever. I know. I know. <laughs> all these damn Chrises. I know. There's too many. <laughs> too many to keep track of at all. Uh, but yeah, so he was dating another girl named Michelle, and she was also pregnant by him. So it gets kind of crazier, too, since Michelle and Jessica knew each other because they all worked at the same restaurant. Oh no. This see this is the kind of thing that I always like my friends who work in the restaurant and service yep. industry be like it is there's so much craziness you don't even know about. I'm exactly. Like, mm-hmm. Everything is sex. Like even if it's not actual sex, like if you walk into a restaurant kitchen you will hear nothing but sex jokes coming from everyone, the sta- the wait staff, the kitchen staff, everyone is just talking about sex all the time and most of them are hooking up with each other. Don't know why, but that's a big restaurant thing. It always happens. There is even a joke on United States of Terra about it. <laughs> when um, Kate went to try to get her boss for sexual harassment and the lady who's in everything that she was talking to was, now the food services industry is a hotbed for sexual activity. It's okay <laughs> if you blew them. Did you blow them? <laughs> 
I mean, that kind of takes the cake. I was just going to say, uh, maybe it's because the hours you work, it makes it hard to date. <laughs> maybe because it's all over the place. But then retail would be the same thing, too. And you know what? Never mind. There were a lot of people hooking up with each other in retail, too. Never mind. I think that might be it. <laughs> um, yeah. So they're both working at the same restaurant. Chris in true Chris fashion. And I do honestly apologize to any listeners named Chris. We still love you guys. Was sleeping with both of them. And as far as we know at this point, knocked both of them up. Mm-hmm. So it also seemed like both Jessica and Michelle, who deserve a whole lot better than this blueberry twat waffle, both intended to keep their babies. It was also reported that Chris had told Michelle that it wasn't serious with Jessica and that Jessica was just a fling and that he wanted to really be with Michelle. Yikes. They decided that they needed to interview this scumbag again. And he did something very suspicious when they did that. So they go to his house, they knock on the door, and they go to talk. And during the interview, he would refer to Jessica both in the present and past tense. Mm. Which is something that makes someone look really, really guilty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd say. Yeah. The The interview took place at Chris's home, and he lived with a relative uh, at the time and had his own private entrance to get in and out of the house. So who the hell can really, you know say where he goes and this house is in a suburb of omaha they didn't have a search warrant at the time but they asked him if they could look around and he starts looking even more guilty when he tells the police yeah go ahead and look around but don't look at my bed or my camping equipment what that's like the literal hey police officers please look there first immediately yeah (laughs) i mean I get it. I don't want the police invading my home either. But why those two places specifically? Red flag alert. Mm-hmm. So the issue with him looking this guilty is, if you remember from earlier, he said that he was at the movies and that was backed up by the ticket stub and security camera footage of him leaving the movie at the end. Now, my mind immediately says, did you check the rest of this tape to see if he left in the middle of it and came back? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I don't have an answer to that question. Anyway, they find footage of him from a day after Jessica disappeared, going to Walgreens and buying three things, which seem kind of like innocuous to me at first uh, when I see them. But Forensic Files made a big deal out of it. So it was obviously a thing. He bought poster paint, whiteout and shoe whitener. The only thing that I can think of with all this stuff is white. So maybe he's trying to cover up blood stains or something. Yeah, maybe. The problem with that is, though, that I would think it would still show up under blacklight and with luminol. So here's the thing. The reason that this was so important is exactly what I thought it was to try to cover up blood. When the police were looking around his room, they noticed that there were spots on the drywall that they were like a different white than the rest of the wall. And there were some small stains that I guess he missed if what you know the police think happened actually happened. So they look closer and the stains do appear to be blood droplets on the ceiling. They ask Chris about this and what is his excuse? Oh, I cut my finger. Are you Houdini? How the fuck would that blood be on the goddamn ceiling? <laughs> it's like I cut my finger and then tried to flung it around flung it around like a wild bird i don't know (laughs) how chris um okay so it's not looking good for chris at all uh the blood on the ceiling is pretty weird if it came from a cut on your finger it's much more likely some sort of impact spatter or some sort of blood spatter now because the media are vultures the news channel somehow found out that the police were at his house and they began live reporting the search of this house into the search Since they now obviously had probable cause and they can do so, they decided to check the bed. They go up and flip the mattress over and it's literally covered in blood. Gross! The analyst said that it was about eight square feet of blood on this mattress. I saw what it looked like and holy shit. Shining elevator scene flashbacks, anyone? Yeah. I bet you're wondering what Chris had to say about this, right? Uh, Did he cut his other hand? No, he tells the police that it's menstrual blood. That's not how that works. That is not how that works. (laughs) Let's hold on a minute here, Chris. First off, you don't have a vagina that I know of, and I don't think you get periods without a vagina. 
even if you had a girl over, I'm 99% sure that she's not a free bleeder because that craze didn't start yet. So that's got to be the worst heavy flow day that I've ever heard of in my life. She was just sitting there and she sneezed and it got everywhere. <laughs> just, yeah. So besides, we all know from previous cases that we covered, there are actually tests that can determine whether or not it was circulatory blood or menstrual blood. So that excuse is never going to work. They searched his car next, and in the trunk, there was also some blood, presumably left from transporting a body. Uh, there were hedge clippers on the front of the car, along with a dirty shovel. They did some tests, but couldn't find where the dirt was from, geographically speaking. But there were some grass on the shovel, too, and analysts uh, checked that out, and it led them to believe that it might have been from a golf course. And... This is always the sad thing, but they sent out search teams at this point, and now they figure what we're all thinking. They are no longer looking for a missing person. They are, in fact, looking for a body. Yeah. So they also knew they needed to test the blood that they found in Chris's house, but they didn't have her body, so there was no DNA to test it against. Now, I talk to my TV. I have a bad habit of doing that, and not just for horror movies when I'm telling a rather large-breasted blonde to run out the front door instead of trying to hide under the bed with their feet sticking out. <laughs> I talked to the TV about everything. And I shouted at Forensic Files and was like, she has living relatives. That'll at least give you a familial match. Or you could look at her things and try to get DNA from that. Well, they went with my second option. And they looked at her underwear, toothbrush, and stuff like that. And they got some DNA. They do the test, and it is a match for Jessica's DNA. Next, they have to find the murder weapon, which they believe, uh, because of the blood spatter analysis, which I would love to learn how to do, by the way, would be a large knife. Obviously, again, they do not have her body, so they can't see the wounds. But this is where I started talking to my TV again. <laughs> I said, not a knife, but what about those hedge clippers, maybe? They were in the car, and the episode did make kind of a point of pointing them out. So anyway, they go back and search the house again. Which is when they find a box with these two swords with 18-inch blades on them. So that goes with the big knife theory. More suspiciously, they weren't there the first time they searched the house. But by mm -hmm. the second time, they were right there in his closet. So he was like, okay, well, I'll get rid of these. And then I guess after they searched his house, he was just like, I can put him back now. I love those swords. They came from the Ren Fair. Yeah. So when analyzing these, they did find traces of blood on them. So way to fool me this time, Forensic Files. I see what you did there. I just want you to know, though, you won't get me next time because now I know your tricks. <laughs> so again, no surprise here. The DNA was a match for Jessica. There was also Chris's DNA on the handle. So he's pretty much completely fucked at this point. He was obviously arrested and he denied being involved at all. So here's where his alibi breaks down. When you go over the timeline, which I think the movie had like an 8.30 or 9.30 showing, if I remember correctly, from the ticket stub, that would still give him time to get back to his place and meet up with Jessica. The movie is an hour and a half long because I looked it up. Uh, with the trailers and how long that you wait for the movie even to start, that would still probably only give an extra like half an hour at most to that runtime. So that's still enough time to meet her around midnight. Mm -hmm. They think they probably argued because Jessica was pregnant and that he didn't want anything to do with her at this point and couldn't deal with the burden of two kids to support. So it was easier to knock off one of them and keep the one he really wanted anyway. He was offered a lighter sentence if he told police where she was buried, but he refused and went to court instead. And he got a hundred year sentence. Yikes. And I know I seem to have a knack for these stories, but this was Nebraska's first no-body conviction. Really? Yes. I've huh. covered at least three of them now. So since Chris, Chris's conviction, there was an appeal attempt, and there were actually some pretty good grounds for this one. Uh, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing this guy's name right. David Kofed? Kofoed? I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right at all. Uh he was the director of the Douglas County Crime Lab at the time that this was going on, and he was actually conv convicted of evidence tampering in oh. another case. So that really opens the floodgates of, well, he did it once. Who's to say he didn't do it other times? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that also leads 
to possibly having to vacate some charges because now there's reasonable doubt. There's still no real doubt in my mind that they got the right guy, but still. So the ruling was not overturned, thank God, and Chris is still in jail serving his sentence. Sadly, Jessica's body has still not been found, and Chris is still maintaining his innocence for whatever that's worth. I think he should just come clean because the jig is obviously up, and her family just needs some freaking closure at this point. So what do you think about all this, Nicole? I don't know. It's just like, one, absolutely tragic. And two, I think the overall lesson here is don't date guys named Chris. Yes, exactly. Learn it from Jessica. Learn it from me. Just learn it. I mean, unless they listen to our podcast, and then they're fine. Yes. <laughs> then they're <laughs> always cool. You get a free pass if you listen to this podcast. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just sad. It's interesting that they convicted him without a body and like it seems to be like a very intense like term for his his jail sentence too. like 100 years. I think. Yeah, I'm sure that was acerbated by the circumstances of what they think happened. Oh, yeah. Well, my sources for this week were Wikipedia, IMDb to look up that that movie, (laughs) which I (laughs) barely remember. I remember it coming out. I don't know if I ever saw it. I want to say, isn't that the one about like the Bell Witch? The, an American haunting. Maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm mistaken. Now I'm gonna I need to know now. Yes, now you're gonna look it up. Well, I will continue with my sources while you look it up. I watched a forensic files episode titled Sorted Scheme, Omaha.com, CharlieProject.org, 3newsnow.com, and Army.mil. Nice, very nice. And it was the Bell Witch one with Sissy Spacek. Okay. Yep, yep. I do remember that one. Okay. I don't I never saw that one, but I do remember it. Ditto. I'm in the same boat. Well, thanks for that story, Eden. It was gruesome indeed, as you promised. And oh, yes. uh, yeah, I think that's a, a great start for our stint in Nebraska. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, I had another one that I wanted to cover, but I saw this one. I was like, yeah, we're, we're going to do this one. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I guess we'll take a short break and then we'll be back with a weird news story. And then my true paranormal-ish story. Yes, true paranormal-ish story. Yes, Perfect. Exactly. And once you hear my story, you'll get why I phrased it that way. <laughs> All right. Well, let's take our true-ish paranormal-ish break. <laughs> and we're back. We're back. And I have a news article for everyone. It's a little shorter one this week, but it should still be good. Are you ready? I am. Okay. This one is from... Uh, I fucking love science because always a great resource. And the line, the title is turns out sex between monkeys and deer in Japan is not a one-time thing. What? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So here's what the article goes on to say. Monkeys in Japan may be starting a new behavioral tradition. One that involves interspecies sex. Yep. It seemed that jumping on the backs of deer and rubbing their genitals is becoming a learned behavior within one group of Japanese macaques. It was earlier this year that a male Japanese macaque, also known as snow monkeys, was first observed jumping onto the back of a female Sika deer and getting its rocks off before jumping away and allowing the poor doe to clean up the resulting mess. While sex between close related species is fairly commonplace, that between distant species has so far been confer- confined to Antarctica fur seals assaulting king penguins. Which I didn't know about that, so that's interesting. So researchers were unsure whether or not this was an isolated action by a rogue male or something more widespread in monkey society. The team turned to a population of macaques living in Minu, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it or not, just north of Osaka in Japan turns out that researchers have been recording interspecies trysts between female monkeys and deer since around 2014. In these cases, it is adolescent females that are too young to be chosen by the mature males, jumping on the backs and rubbing themselves against the unfortunate deer. Over a period of two months, the researchers observed five young female monkeys mounting deer a total of 258 times. Oh my... The females were seen to rub their genitals on the back of the deer, not unlike how the male was seen to ejaculate on the hapless steed he commandeered. 
Uh, yeah. That's just insane. Yeah. I don't even know what to do with that. I don't either. I mean, they barely seem to know what to do with that. That's just, uh, I mean, monkeys, man. Yeah. I mean, they're like the horniest animals on earth. I Maybe mean, other than rabbits. I guess. Damn. And of course, they're the ones that are the most similar to us. So that must speak volumes about humans as well. <laughs> yep. 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 Well, I have no smooth transition into my story after that news. <laughs> nope. Neither do I. But that's what I got for this week, guys. It's a weird one. You wanted weird. I gave you weird. Yes, you certainly did. So I guess I'll just dive right into my story. <laughs> All right. Dive in like a monkey about to do it with a deer. <laughs> so... I also selected a story that takes place in Omaha, which you did a fantastic job of covering the details about this largest city in Nebraska. I did have it in my notes here that it is also the seventh largest city in the Midwest, which is pretty impressive. Uh, The city grew out of Fort Omaha, which was nestled along the Missouri River near the mouth of the Platte or Nebraska River. Over the years, the city annexed other smaller communities nearby, resulting in a diverse collection of neighborhoods spread throughout the Omaha metro area. The Florence neighborhood is one such community. It's located in the northern part of Omaha. Identified as one of the oldest communities in Nebraska, people have been living in Florence since 1846, when 2,500 members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints built a winter encampment during their trek west from Nouveau, Illinois. Hmm, okay. Back to the Mormons. Uh, Always, everything comes back to the Mormons. (laughs) Now, the Mormon pioneers abandoned their encampment in 1848, but not before building a town square, a cemetery, which is today called the Mormon Pioneer Cemetery, and a grist mill, which is today called the Florence Mill. In 1854, James C. Mitchell plotted out a new settlement that included the buildings left by the Mormon pioneers with the hopes that the site would be selected as the Missouri River crossing point for the Transcontinental Railroad. He named the new city Florence after his granddaughter, but unfortunately, Omaha was selected as the crossing point for the railroad and not Florence. Aw, boo. Boo. While this is a pretty big setback for Florence's growth, people still settled in the community due to its proximity to the Florence Mill and the presence of the Bank of Florence, which was established in 1856. Now, by the turn of the 20th century, Omaha was rapidly growing, and in 1917, Florence was officially annexed by the city of Omaha. Today, Florence is known as the neighborhood with Omaha's oldest historical sites, Points of interest include the Mormon Trail Center, where you can learn about the Mormon migration to Utah, the historical Florence Depot, a railroad and transportation museum, and our stop for today, Hummel Park. Hummel, like the little uh, figurines? figurines. Yes, sir. Uh, I think it's interesting in your intro that you mentioned all the lovely parks around Omaha. There There is a wonderful park system there, and Hummel Park is part of it. Now, located in the northern part of the Florence neighborhood, Hummel Park covers 202 acres of forested woodland that's adjacent to the Missouri River, and a bunch of little streams and tributaries are also in the park. That's a lot of space. Yeah, it's a huge, huge park. Uh, It opened in 1930 and is named after Joseph B. Hummel, a longtime superintendent responsible for growing Omaha's parks and recreation department. The park has several playgrounds, uh, a scenic overlook of the Missouri River, picnic shelters, horseshoe pits, a disc golf course, and several hiking trails, along with the popular, quote, Devil's Slide, which is the name of a natural cliff on the east side of the park. Well, that sounds fun and terrifying. Mm-hmm. The Hummel Park Nature Center, which is operated today by the Omaha Parks and Recreation Department, offers environmental education programs and special nature events. For more than 60 years, the park has been home to a summer camp for thousands of learners. Hummel Park is a beloved area used by thousands of people every year who enjoy it, enjoy the view, and treasure the park. However, the park is also the location for many morbid tales and rumors going back to at least the park's opening 
And they really run the gambit from violent crime, murder, mysterious disappearances, all the way through to satanic rituals, ghostly apparitions, and even a gateway to hell. Wonderful. Exactly what I want (laughs) in my parks. So this is the part of my story that I like to call the choose your own adventure structure. And it's because I found so many weird ass wide ranging stories about the park from just articles, eyewitnesses talking about their own experiences in the park to even some of the haunted tours that occur in the park throughout the year that I decided to group the stories that seemed to me to be probably urban legends because I couldn't really verify them historically with a different group for the stories that I could actually verify in some way, shape, or form from historical record. So now, Eden, your choice is, would you like to hear about the unverifiable but hella interesting stories about Hummel Park, the verifiable in some ways and just plain weird stories, or the dark events that probably definitely happened in Hummel Park? I think we should start our our way through with the legends and then work our way to the more real. All right. Sounds good to me. So these are stories that I was not able to verify, but they were hella interesting to me. First up, one of the legends I learned about was of one of the first settlers on the land that would eventually become Hummel Park. It was a German man named Jacob Kaltenoff. He and his wife, Lorinda, built a cabin in a small farmstead in the hills that overlooked the Missouri River. But apparently, cabin life with Jacob just wasn't for Lorinda, so she took a lover. Stories differ on why. Some say that he was kind of mean. Other stories say, say that she was kind of mean. It's across the board. We don't really actually know the motivations. You can make it your own because it's a legend. So someone was a meanie pants. A meanie someone pants was a meanie McGee. pants. And it resulted in an extramarital affair. Well, one day, apparently, Lorinda had just had enough of cabin life with Jacob, and she and her lover decided to murder him. They murdered him in the dead of night, buried his body near the cabin before running off. All right. Very sensible. Yep. Yep. As one does to get rid of an unwanted husband. Wish I'd thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you don't have a cabin, so you can't. That's true. Now, the interesting thing is that people have reported seeing Jacob's ghost or who they presume Jacob's ghost appear near the spot where the cabin was supposedly located. It's the apparition of a male ghost who's heard wailing, where is Lorinda and don't leave me. So it kind of sounds like Lorinda jumped ship because he was kind of whiny. Yeah, it sounds very sad, though, as well. Yes, it does. Um, again, I couldn't find any historical records to even back up the existence of Jacob and Lorinda, and none of the places where I found the story actually cited any additional sources. So I'm going to say this one is interesting, but probably an urban legend. Next up is something that, while may not be necessarily true, is tied more closely to the historic record of Omaha. On one of the main roads that leads into the park, all the trees curve inwards towards the road. According to local Hmm. legend, in the early 1900s, white residents of Omaha lynched a large number of black citizens from the trees. The trees are thought to retain the memories of these gruesome murders and still bow under the weight of their victims' souls. Ew. I don't like that very much. Right? How awful is that? That's really sad and really, really fucking creepy. Well... While I couldn't find any historical records that show any kind of mass lynchings in Hummel Park or even any lynchings for that matter, the city of Omaha does have a history of racial tension among the various ethnic groups who emigrated to the city in the 19th and 20th centuries. And there were several riots during the early 20th century as a result of these tensions. They include the 1909 Greek town riot where a mob of 3,000 men killed a Greek boy displaced the entire population of Greektown and burned down the six-block-by-six-block Greek neighborhood in South Omaha. Wow, that's fucked up. And that was followed in 1919 by the Omaha Race Riot, which was part of a summer of racial riots all across the industrialized cities in America. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as Red Summer. Yeah. In 1919, this riot began after an African-American laborer named Willie Brown was accused of raping a young white woman and 10,000 white residents congregated outside the jail, dragged him outside, lynched him, then burned his bodies, and then proceeded to rampage through the city. And at one point, they tried to hang the city's mayor and they burned down the courthouse. It was just awful. 
So no, that sounds pretty awful. Yes. So while this didn't happen in Hummel Park, it's understandable why a story like this would probably capture the local imagination of people familiar with Omaha's history. And I could see that being true because these things did happen pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, And this is my favorite wild story about Hummel Park. Apparently, in Hummel Park, if you go out late at night and you either honk a horn in a certain section of the park or some say light a firework or fire a gun, you'll be greeted by the albinos that live in the woods. Oh, Jesus. Here we go. <laughs> Now, the nature of this group changes with each story. In some stories, they're described as a family or an extended family of people with albinism who have escaped a traveling circus decades ago and taken up residency in the dense woods of the park. Other stories say that it's a colony or group of homeless people who suffer from albinism and have taken refuge and prey on innocent victims as they travel through the park. See, this is too much like... uh... Like Constitution Drive, where we where we live, mm-hmm. it is, and it's interesting because I the reason I was like, oh great, everybody has like the scary albinos in the woods, apparently. I guess, yeah. <laughs> and I looked more into it, and like it's a thing. So, like the crazy thing about this is that this legend about Hummel Park pops up all over the U.S. in various locations. Like we have our local story called Constitution Drive, but it's it's very prevalent, and it's a very uniquely American urban legend about these mythic albino colonies. And a lot of folks think it kind of comes from this evil albino stereotype that kind of appears all throughout different media and works of fiction. I mean, the think about the Da Vinci Code, yep, Da Vinci Code, <laughs> even like the what the Matrix Reloaded, and something. Yeah, one of the Matrix ones. Yeah, and there's all kinds of like negative um, views of people born with albinism all throughout culture, and this is just a reflection of it. It's not true. There's no people living in the park. That you would know of, Nicole. That that suffer from albinism. It's just, I mean, I'm sure there's probably homeless people living in this huge park because it seems like the place where you would want to live and be able to safely live they without a shelter. They could just be very pale gingers that have no souls. <laughs> you never know. You're right. I never know, but I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Yeah, just always, like, people fear what they don't understand, anything that's different from them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I can I can see where these stories come from, but it's also completely ridiculous. And like I said, the place by us, Constitution Drive, is supposed to be this place where, and I'll tell you, you don't want to go down this road just because of what it will do to your car because it is so bumpy. Nothing's paved right. It's <laughs> horrible. That was the, the stressful part of going down the road. Plus, they don't want people really going down that road because police will chase you off. Um, but supposedly there's a family of, crazy albinos of course that live uh like in the houses along there that will come out with a shotgun and they'll try to like push your car into like the river and something about a bunch of pigs that i don't really remember but it's just bizarre and yeah. there's no truth to it no truth whatsoever other than the fact that people live in those houses and it's a private road so you probably should exactly <laughs> so you probably shouldn't go investigating All right, so now are you ready for some stories that are verifiable in some way and kind of weird, but may not be entirely true? I'm ready. All right. In the words of SpongeBob, I'm ready. (laughs) So we'll start with one particularly beautiful overlook in the park. Now, you walk up this hill to overlook the Missouri River, and you'll find at the end of a stone path two twin altars. It's difficult to say what these structures were originally meant for, but today they're often used by people who want to burn things in the park. You know, little bonfire, something, you never know. A satanic ritual, it's cool, do whatever. Did someone say Satan? How did you know? (laughs) (laughs) So the rumors about these altars is that local Satanists or practitioners of the dark arts will use the altars for nefarious rituals. Uh, Several visitors have reported hearing screams coming from the area of these quote-unquote altars, and when they've gone to investigate, they have been unable to determine the source of the screaming. Uh, So I can can verify that these quote-unquote altars definitely exist. However, when you see pictures of them, they're not quite altars. Like when I think of an altar, I think of something that's at least going to be like four feet high, maybe like waist high, that has a flat surface on it. 
these look more like they were the foundation or footing for some other structure or for statues. They're only about like two and a half, three feet tall. It does have like a little uh, indent that people use as like a makeshift fire pit for sure. But all of the information I could find about the park tends to indicate that these were probably improvements that the Works Progress Administration contributed contributed to the park in the 1930s, and they never finished them. Also, anything about Satan automatically makes me want to grab for my salt to give a little pinch just to sweeten up the story just right. Of course. (laughs) I'm actually looking for pictures of the altars, and I can't find any, but lots of pictures of stairs. Yes, I'll get to the stairs in a second, but I will send you a picture of the altars in Hummel Park. Okay, it looks almost like more of like a barbecue. Yes. Like type deal, like a barbecue pit. Or like you said before, like it's something that would have just been for another structure that they just kind of like, well, we don't have any money left or we don't feel like finishing this. Here you go. Yep, exactly. Kind of similar to the altars, the next location within the park that's reportedly haunted is something that came from the WPA contributions from the 1930s. It is a pavilion that's known as the Lodge. This must be the graffiti pictures that I saw. Mm-hmm. Yep, indeed. The lodge is a simple wooden roofed stone structure that's in the shape of a rectangle. It has a large fireplace at one end and two large open entryways on the long sides of the rectangle. Uh, originally, it was intended as a picnic spot, pavilion gathering spot for park visitors. Probably a great place to have a large extended family picnic on Saturday or Sunday afternoons. Over uh, In recent years, the lodge has fallen into disrepair. They boarded up the fireplace and the inside and outside is covered in graffiti. Now, rumors say that secret societies, gangs, and even cults all use the lodge as a meeting place. Talk about a messy calendar. Yeah. I mean, what happens like if the gang comes at the same time the Satanists do? Like what? Do they like have like a turf war for it? What's going on here? You're like, listen, Wednesdays is Crip Night. Thursdays is Illuminati Night. You know that, guys. All right, let's have a thumb warn. Rihanna's going to be here. Come on. It's important. Let's have a thumb warn. Figure it out before she gets here. (laughs) (laughs) Now, other than this this wild, crazy rumor, people have reported feeling a very threatening and mysterious dark presence when they're in the lodge. And this has Hmm. happened to folks who have stopped by during the day and night. It's just an eerie place to go. I'm sure part of it has to do with the abandoned feel of it and the isolation of of Hummel Park itself, but still people just get a bad vibe from the place. And then there's also the weird things that show up in pictures that are taken in in and of the lodge. Ooh, do tell. In some of these pictures, people see unexplained orbs and they look like spirit photography orbs, almost like the light um, swirling orbs that kind of pop up in other haunted locations. Um, So this has happened for on photography that's appeared, you know, digitally in phones and cameras, but also like going back for for years into the 80s, there's been reports of like spirit orbs appearing in pictures taken at the lodge. That's one that I'm kind of like, all right, that's a little bit creepier. Like part of it is kind of like, all right, that's a rumor about all those secret societies showing up there. But the unexplained lights and things like that, I can definitely see some dark and nasty stuff probably happening at the lodge. Yeah. And that would explain some of the, the the uncomfortable feelings people have. Next up, we're going to head to an area of the park that has been nicknamed the Devil's Den. Ooh. Part of it is its close proximity to the Devil's Slide, the natural cliff face in the park. But I was the, just about to ask you that. Yes. The other part has to do with a stairway that's called the Stairs to Hell. Okay, Led Zeppelin did the opposite. Exactly, exactly. Now, legend has it, if you count the steps going up and coming down, the number will never match. It will never match up. I don't trust myself to count for that long (laughs) and keep track. So I'm probably not going to be able to test that. At least I'm not the best person to do that with. And depending on who you ask, they'll say there's always more steps going up than coming down. Or maybe they'll say the reverse, that there's more stairs going down than coming up. But it's said that if you ever do arrive at the same number, it's a omen of your impending death. What? Okay, I don't like that very much. Mm-mm. No, thank you. It's like, I'll take a banshee any over day over counting. Gross. Yeah, right. 
And then there's also a legend involving the stairs that say if you count the steps while descending and happen to count the correct number, the devil himself or perhaps one of his minions will appear and grant you anything you ask for as long as you're willing to hand over your eternal soul in exchange. So I'm going to pass. Yeah, going to pass. I'm also not sure how counting equals a crossroads, but whatevs. You, you yeah. do you, Nebraska. So <laughs> very strange. Super strange. I kind of love this legend, though. And yeah, me the, too. And the interesting thing is it pops up everywhere uh, when you look for Humble Park. It's one of the top legends. I mean, obviously, it's been disproven. The Parks and Recreation Department confirms there are 188 steps. So that's a lot of steps to count, which is very understandable why folks might have a counting error. Exactly. And then also because the steps are irregular in shape, that is also a contributing factor. And plus now the stairway has been deteriorating for about 60 years, which also lead to common miscount and counting errors. Yeah. They're not very nice, like easy to walk steps. Mm -mm, mm -mm. And you've got like trees on either side, which make it look super creepy from the pictures that I saw. So... Yeah. So now we're on to the dark stuff that absolutely definitely happened in Hummel Park. All righty. And like you said in, in your story, there's a lot of crime in Omaha because it's a fairly large city and that's usually where crime tends to happen. So within this fairly large city, you have an extremely large remote secluded park. And that just is a natural place for people to get up to all kinds of awful business. Bodies have been found in the park regularly since it opened. People also tend to choose Hummel Park as that last place before they end up killing themselves. It could be the nature and the serenity they're looking for that they can't find in life, or it could be a darker force. Who knows? Creepy. Okay, so it reminds me a little bit of those suicide woods in yeah. Japan or whatever now. Yeah. Uh, here's just a small, and I do mean small, sampling of the confirmed crimes that occurred in Hummel Park. I had a much longer list than I realized that was kind of super depressing, so I just kind of grab some greatest hits that I found on the North Omaha history website. Sounds good. So going all the way back to the park's opening in 1933, a repairman was found shot and killed in his van in the park. In 1950, a drunk driver left Hummel park and ran into a university of Omaha hayride and killed a person. In 1956, a adult male was tried for raping a woman at the park. And I'm sure that's happened many times over the years. In 1983, a group of prostitutes from Omaha killed another prostitute and then dumped her body just outside of Hummel Park. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. In 1988, a recently released convict was accused was convicted of raping a woman at the park. In 1992, a high school student was kidnapped and murdered in the park. And in 2006, a child who was missing for over a year was discovered dead in Hummel Park. I almost wonder if maybe Jessica is in Hummel Park because who knows with all this, it could be, <laughs> it seems like a pretty popular location to dump the bodies. Big dumping ground. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So all in all, Hummel Park seems like an exceptionally creepy, but probably very beautiful place. I, I think I thought it was really interesting when I came across it, this kind of counterpoint of all these legends about the park and the sinister nature that are very, you know, like, oh, there's Satanists and cultists and ghosts. And there's been so many of these weird things that happened at Hummel Park. There's a gateway to hell when the reality is, is that the truly horrific things that have happened at Hummel Park have just been how awful human beings are to each other and how we hurt and abuse each other regularly. And that's true. And I mean, that can cause, you know, at least residual hauntings, if nothing else. I know. And it so. makes you wonder if like part of that, like, dark feeling that people get sometimes at places like the the lodge for example is related to some of the violence that's happened in the park yeah absolutely but yeah Eden. so what do you think would you want to go for a sweet picnic on 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 the devil's slide with me with a rather large group of people i would go there otherwise no because someone's going to get raped or murdered and i just don't <laughs> want that it's not I a fun sunday <laughs> and we would need to bring ashley because maybe she would count the right number of steps <laughs> <laughs> she likes weird things like numbers. <laughs> but yeah, I would I would definitely go and check out the park. Uh, like I said, I'd, I'd like an entourage because I do not want to go there alone. <laughs> but yeah, it sounds like an interesting time. And I really did like those uh, those legends and stuff like that. That was pretty cool. Cool. 
cool. Cool. Yeah, when I first came across the park, I'm like, oh my God, I felt like Stefan. I'm like, it has everything. Right. Satanists, a slide to nowhere, albinos. <laughs> like, ridiculous. Why are you suddenly using Jennifer Coolidge voice? <laughs> oh, it's my poor attempt to do Stefan from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> My sources, uh, my sources for this today's story were Wikipedia, Mental Floss, HistoricFlorence.org, NorthOmahaHistory.com, OnlyInterstate.com, Omaha Magazine, and DailyNebraskan.com. Thank you very much, Nicole. That was a fun story. If you like the stories you heard today, you can reach out to us. You can send us a quick email at RoadsideHorrorShow at gmail.com. Uh, you can also go to our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook at Roadside Horror Show and on Twitter at Roadside Horror. We'd also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and Emassi for our intro and outro music. Until next time, Roasters. Creep, creep on, creep on. Creep on.